Hello and welcome to the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with Detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Brianna Wu. Brianna and I got into a fantastic conversation about her experience being a politician, a candidate, a journalist, her background in the gaming industry, being a video game developer, the Gamergate controversy of 2014, the similarities and the continued use of that tactic in what we saw with Trump and then again later this year. It's all a very fascinating conversation. It's winding. We get into a lot of heavy topics, but it's a very good discussion. I think you're definitely going to get a lot out of it. I do want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on Nostalgia Overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours, but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. Now, if this is your first time stopping by the podcast, welcome. We hope you enjoy it and that you'll come back again next time. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. We hope that here in the next 45, 50, 60, however long this podcast episode is, that you're able to kick back, relax, and just detox from the world around you for a little bit. Now, if you like the show, the there are a couple of ways for you to help us out. One, you can share the episode and the podcast with a friend. Two, you can rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps independent podcasts like myself out. And three, please make sure that you are subscribing so you never miss an episode. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Brianna Wu is right up after this. What's going on? My name is Joe Shaw, and I host the music podcast After the Encore. After the Encore is a long-form career retrospective podcast that takes you behind the music of some of your favorite artists. Musicians like John Oates of Holland Oates, Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC, and Jarrett Reddick of Bowling for Soup, and many others. Each season of the podcast is themed around a different topic, like the boy bands of the 90s, badass women in music, or even artists that were featured on the TV show, The Voice. I am committed to taking you deep inside an artist's mind to find out why they do what they do, what does music mean to them, and how do they quantify success. We tell an overarching story which will take you not only behind the music, but into the psyche of the artists themselves. After the Encore is a proud member of the Roberts Media Group podcast family, Check us out on any of your favorite podcast platforms today. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is the wonderful, the fabulous Brianna Wu, or as I like to call her, Brie. Bree, how are you doing today? I'm amazing. I'm so glad we could connect to do this. I am really excited to dig in. You've had a fascinating life and career, and have got amazing perspectives on a lot of things that I think our listeners would find highly valuable. So I'm excited to kind of dig into your thought processes on a few different items. Uh, but what I like to do here, the detox podcast to level set each conversation, because here we're inviting people to detox from the world around them, get a window into how other people live their lives. So I'd like to ask the guests, Brianna or Brie, what are you currently detoxing from? Detoxing. So is detoxing, is it a positive or is it a negative thing? Is so it... usually folks say like, oh, I'm detoxing from social media or I'm detoxing from negativity in my life. So I'm trying to make more positivity in my life. You know what? I don't, I, I, I don't mean to sound like uh, self-aggrandizing. I don't think I have a problem with like saying, oh, I've got to cut this out of my life. I, I'm having trouble with this. Like, I feel like generally speaking, my life is pretty balanced. I mean, 
you know, I, I get the exercise I need. I have hobbies I enjoy. I'm doing professional work that I believe in. So honest answer, I, I, I would love to tell you something I'm detoxing from. I'm just not right now. Well, that's really good to hear because I yeah, think it can yeah. be so hard to mm-hmm. to have that balance at constant motion because so often we get honed in on either work or extraneous activities or mm-hmm. anything else. And so it can be hard to find that balance. But I love it when people are able to say, no, I've got a good balance. I've got a good flow. I'm really yep. at one with myself. And that's that's a valuable skill that I am still working on. So I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> I mean, I, I certainly, it hasn't been this way for me forever. You know, I've been very open when I was in my early 20s. I went through rehab and not just you know, like, like a a day at rehab. This was like $30,000 a month, live at the hospital, hardcore rehab. When Tiger Woods actually checked into a a clinic for sex addiction, he went to my rehab clinic. (laughs) So it was top level expert advice. So I had professional help to get to this point. <laughs> well, that's good. Only the best. Only the best. Yes, only right. the best for me. I'm, I think I'm worth it personally. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to talk about a little bit of your background. So, if you could help us talk sure. through your career. So, you you were a journalist for a while, and now yep. you're um, you're a video game developer. Is that the uh, correct phrase? Yeah, I've had a really interesting career. Uh, My first job, believe it or not, was a politico in Washington, D.C. for, and don't judge me for this, the Republican Party in the Bush era. (laughs) And people used to ask me, they were like, where did you, why did you become a Democrat? And I was like, because I worked for the Republican Party in the Bush era. (laughs) That'll do it. Never looked back. Ever. I was there in the offices as we were deciding to invade Iraq, and I knew it was BS. I knew it was a lie. I was like, these are not good people. So, uh, yeah, that's actually why I decided to uh, go and work in journalism uh, for a while. Uh, I ran my own game studio. Uh, I ran for Congress. Uh, Right now, I run a super PAC. So I think I've had a fairly uh, broad-ranging career. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's interesting you bring up the the politics side of of things because I think it's it's I mean, we're getting ready, I would say the midterms are god, it feels like they're so far away, but they're really not. They're not. I mean, they're, they're just not. a year and a half away, less than, less than yep. a year and a half away. And so I think while we've in some respects, I will say in some respects, taking a bit of a breather on some of the more intense political ideas and day-to-day shenanigans of the prior four years, um, mm-hmm. there's different there's different things that crop up and different things yeah. that are, are going to seek our attention. Um, I can know, tell you running a super PAC, I am terrified of these, these midterms. Uh, I feel like we had four years of drama with Trump. And people are going back to sleep. Uh, mm, you know, mm-hmm. for for the Trump years, you had Democrats activated and awake. And for yep. us, you know, it was um, the amount of support and energy we had with volunteers, donations, attention, all that thing. It it made our job very easy. At rebellion. Uh, now that we're our entire purpose is keeping the house and expanding it, uh, you know, with progressives and in the Senate as well. Um, we're really finding people have kind of nodded off a bit. So I'm, I'm really concerned about that personally. That's a good segue. So tell us a little bit about, um, I want to get into the video game aspect of it all. I've got some interesting questions for sure, but I do want to talk a little bit about rebellion. So, so what was the, I want to go back to the point that you made about people, people perhaps going back to sleep. That's an interesting note and I don't want to lose Mm -hmm. it, but I do want to give some background context for folks who are listening. So walk me through the genesis of rebellion as a pack, how, why it was created and what its current goals and mission statement is. You know, so uh, it was really interesting because I had been running for Congress for three years. Um, You know, I was exhausted. I was burnt out. Um, you know, I ended up having to uh, stop my uh, congressional campaign because of the pandemic. Uh, I looked very objectively at the numbers and I'm like, look, you cannot win a race if you can't fundraise, hold events, meet voters, do all this stuff that the pandemic is stopping us from. So I made this 
heart-wrenching decision to put three years of work on, you know, on hold. And my first thought was I wanted to go use my, the skills I developed in fundraising to open up a, a big new video game studio. And, uh, you know, Cenk Uger uh, of the Young Turks called me up and we'd met because he had run for Congress as well and it hadn't worked out for him. And, he basically wanted to keep progressives activated uh, during the 2020 cycle. Mm -hmm. And uh, we put our heads together. It was a really big opportunity to be executive director. And I took it. And I'm very, very proud of this. I can point you towards data that shows literally tens of thousands of voters we got out in swing states. Wow. you know, in a, for some of these races, they were very thin. And I don't think we're the only reason we won, but I know we fought in that battle. You know, the margins of the margin of the, the votes, that difference being so thin, I don't think it was ever more prevalent than in Georgia, whether we're mm-hmm. talking about the presidential election or the Senate runoffs. Yep. And, yeah, we were yeah. after after Biden won, we literally I just have reconstructive knee surgery and we were just we went straight from one election into Georgia. And it was I got to tell you, it was it was a slog. Um, but, you know, that was basically that was my mission. You know, I, I felt really compelled. I really see it as service to your country. I mean, um, I don't know how your listeners feel. I personally feel like our democracy is in a very um, precarious place. And I think if we don't make different choices, uh, this liberty and democracy we take for granted uh, could conceivably fall apart. And to be honest with you, I would much rather be developing video games right now. I just can't do it when there's so much on the line. That's a good point. And one which bears repeating is the fact that when we're talking about voting rights mm-hmm. as it relates to every citizen, voting is a right. It's not a privilege. And yet we continually see laws that are passed to stifle that privilege, make it yeah. more difficult, with, whether it's not allowing water in line while voting, whether it's having only one drop off location, not being able to get mail-in ballots at a certain time. I mean, just on and on and on. I'm here in Texas. We see it here. We saw it in Georgia and it's only going to get worse. And I think to the point that you were saying earlier, it's easy for folks to ease off on the gas because they, because I think a lot of folks perceive the, I'm using air quotes here, perceive that the threat is gone, the threat in this case meaning Trump, and that, okay, we've got Biden in the White House, we've got Vice President Kamala Harris, we've got, you know, a, a Senate, barely a Senate majority, we've got House majority, so we're we're good, and so I can kind of go back to my day-to-day without recognizing that these voting rights laws that are being passed are going to stifle things for the next cycle, which makes it more difficult to continue to progress forward with a better, more inclusive world, mm-hmm. worldview. Yeah. And I don't want to scold people, though, because no, the last no. four years of Trump were absolutely exhausting. Those were the some of the worst four years of my life. Um, yeah. yeah, on top of the pandemic. And I, yeah, I often feel guilty about my Twitter feed because I'm not talking about these serious issues as much as I know I should. I'm talking about games and memes because I'm, it's my literal job and I'm exhausted with this stuff. Sure. Um, you know, but the, the thing about being a warrior is you don't get to like, you know, if you, if you, if you really treat this seriously, you don't just get to show up when it's convenient, you know? Right. Um, and I think my message out there to your listeners would be, it's okay if you're tired. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to tune into politics right now, that's fine. Just make sure you're donating resources to people that are doing this critical groundwork yeah. for 2020. Uh, you know, it really, really matters. So if you can't get out there and volunteer, you want to tune out on Facebook, that's cool. But the people doing this job are gearing up and things are not looking like they should right now. It was... That's a good point that you bring up about if you are too tired because it has been exhausting, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Just ensure that you're providing resources and the ability for others to now move forward kind of on the front line, so to speak. I 
I just, my wife and I just watched not too long ago, and this is um, probably not a great thing, but with the QAnon documentary on, on oh, HBO. Yeah. And I was so happy I wasn't in that, by the way. <laughs> I was so happy. I was like, please don't mention me. Oh, my goodness, please right? Don't. Oh. Please don't. And it, they didn't. So. It was, it was, I read a really good review. Um, before I even dug into it, MSNBC, I believe it was MSNBC was the review I read. And it said, and I, I don't necessarily take the, the full stance of, of the, um, the journalist that wrote the review, but I do under, I agree with their sentiment. So the, what they had said was the QAnon documentary, uh, the, the director, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the director bring, like, concludes it with the January 6th riot. And, and and acts as if like, well, we stopped the rioters, we've got a new administration and we're done. And that's not it. And I watched it and I didn't quite get that sense that strongly. However, I did agree with the sentiment of if we leave if you leave if one leaves that documentary with the sense of, oh, this is a natural conclusion, we're done, that's the dangerous ground. I agree. Because I now agree. people have just gone quiet. And I that's mean, we can get in into space. it, but yeah, there's a direct it. line between QAnon and the thing that people know me best for, which is Gamergate. It's yes. all the exact same. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so I'll keep it churchy. It's you the exact swear. same BS. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there's a direct line. I mean, many right. journalists after Trump was elected, uh, drew the lines between the tactics the Trump uh, administration and campaign used and Gamergate. And then you look at that to QAnon and then this this toxic uh, sickness that has infected half the country. And it's it's truly terrifying. Um, You know, I realize I wasn't the first person to be really targeted online, but it was it was the first iteration of this playbook that is being used like a scalpel to take apart every single institution we take for granted journalism, uh, you know, legislature, uh, you know, the political process campaigns. It is, it's destroying our country. I, two things happened on January 6th for me. I will never forget where I was and what was happening. And, I never thought I would see something like that in my lifetime. And two, what I also never thought I would see is friends, well, perhaps former friends, family members and others already starting the, well, what about isms online? Like starting to defend that, well, but what about this? And well, isn't the election really stolen? And well, isn't this, that, and the other? And I said, I don't understand how you can watch what you watched, what I watched, what we all watched, an invasion of democracy and start to go, well, but is it really that bad? Like, yeah, they were trying to steal the votes. Yeah. And and that is, to your point, the the rhetoric being used online to drive that line of thinking is scary and dangerous and one that. A lot of people were unaware of that it was being so actively used. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now it was a terrifying yeah. day. It was, yeah. it was, it was just horrible. And yep. I, I do think one of the things I think that is a, a good, it's a good step forward since January sixth is you know during GamerGate. What we kept saying is, why won't anyone put the brakes on this? Why won't Google mm-hmm. step in? And, you know, if, uh, if, if someone is writing a bot to put up garbage on my name and uprank, like, stuff from, you know, posblog.com over right. the New York Times to SEO cheat that, you know, Google needs to step in and, and do something, you know. Why can't Twitter do something about their harassment policies? Why can't law enforcement do something when people are getting serious, credible death threats and bricks thrown through their window? For us, there was no help there. What I have personally found heartening in the aftermath of the January 6th is this is when Twitter said, okay, we are suspending Donald Trump. 
This is when Facebook actually got more serious about applying their TOS, that they have a lot of work to do. This is when law enforcement finally started cracking down on these white supremacy groups, and we are seeing lawsuits come to fruition. So it's my hope that this is kind of the, the flag that's been planted for us to introduce consequences into the equation, which has been the thing missing to this point. Yeah. No, I think, you know, everything is a progression, right? And so we're constantly trying to iterate on something that we've done before. And you, I think of I, that, what you said takes me back to this idea of companies not making public stances against racism and hatred and misogyny and homophobia up until the last couple of years and specifically in a lot of instances until the murder of George Floyd. But mm -hmm. then you started seeing it and as frustrating as it has been from seeing some companies and some institutions not making these public stances or m commitments to try and undo some of the systemic racism and, and help to try and start the process of unwinding it, they folks do have to start somewhere. And so mm -hmm. if they're starting, you know, it's like, you know what, it's not too late. Let's start working now. Let's keep working at it. Let's keep improving on it and let's catch up. Um, and so my hope to that point is that we will continue along that trajectory and continue to improve upon our commitments to start to make that more inclusive world. But it's, it's, it's tough for sure. I, I personally find myself so incredibly cynical uh, about that. And, yep. you know, in the aftermath of Gamergate, which we should definitely define for your listeners mm -hmm. at some point, but we had, we had so many companies in the world talking about diversity and inclusion and hiring more women. And, you know, that was almost six years ago. Yeah. I went to bat with a heck of a lot of <laughs> A heck of a lot of companies to uh, really encourage them to up the number of women that they were hiring. Just to talk about these stats, in all of computer science, if you add up the number of women uh, programmers out there, believe it or not, it's a relatively high number according to, uh, I believe it's the uh, Boston University. Boston University, uh, it is approaching 20%. If you look at the game industry, it's only 2%. Out of everybody who is a programmer in the video game industry, only 2% are women. That is an abysmal number. Yeah. So, you know, we talked to them and tried to get all of this commitment. You know, I feel like six years later, we see what the, the outcome of this. And, you know, you will have companies that will put out tweets celebrating the, the women that work there or do a little marketing thing like promoting the stories of certain women at a company. But when I look at the structural things that women that I know still face in the video game industry, uh, we know for a fact the hiring is a little better at the base level, but as far as the promotions, that's just as bad as it's ever been. Yeah. Women are still leaving the game industry in the same numbers we always have been. The number of journalists is definitely higher, but when it comes to like structurally addressing it, I, I don't see much progress that we're making. So I feel like overall, I, I just don't even want to hear people's, um, uh, how much they care. I want to see sure. a policy. I want to sure. see a law. I want to see outcome yep. because, you know, if you went down to the Trump White House and asked them, like, do you perceive yourself as sexist or racist? They're going to swear up and down all day that they're right. not and they right. care about this stuff. They say the exact same things that the video game industry says. So I think rather than caring what people say, you have to judge what actually happens. Mm -hmm. That's well, 
Well said, well put, and I will take a moment to let folks know about today's sponsor of the podcast, which is Snuffy. Snuffy's a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. So shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O. Owner and operator of Snuffy is Nick Silvestri, great friend of the podcast, designed the Detox Podcast logos. So if you like it, you want to go support him, go check it out, snuffy.co. All right. So let us level set uh, for listeners who may be saying Gamergate, Gamergate, what is this Gamergate? Can you, in very broad strokes and two, you know, two minutes or so, help us define this idea of Gamergate for those who may not be as tuned to it or may be completely absent of the video game culture in general? Yeah, of course. Uh, Gamergate, the the core of it is it was an organized harassment campaign against women in the video game industry, speaking out in favor of inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happened is you had a group of people that found a playbook that was very, very, very effective in getting women in the video game industry to quit. You would go through their past you would find something to attack them with, and then you would send mobs of people after them uh, or even send information to their employer until the price of speaking out for inclusion was so high, it was simpler to simply remain silent. Um, Early in 2014, uh, basically they had started targeting a lot of the women I cared about in the video game industry. I was very upset about this. I started speaking out and uh, I got so many death threats, uh, incredible, uh, incredible threats on my life that the FBI got involved, my congresswoman got involved, and they actually made a law and order episode about what happened to me. It's this. I think it's important to note the time, right? So this is early 2014. I think a lot of people, because we've been so steeped in Trump world, as it were, that I think it. (laughs) I don't know how best to say this. The world has has been moving in this direction for a while, and it's not new. It was just perhaps maybe un made more public with with Trump's uh, campaign and then presidency. But it was always there, this idea of misogyny, this idea of um, sexual harassment before the Me Too movement. I mean, it still existed in our society. And it. I think it's interesting to me when I think about, interesting is probably a wrong choice of word. I would say, um, well, it, <laughs> I guess maybe interesting is the best word. What well, I'm, I'm trying to be delicate with how I say say this, but it's it's not it it's not a surprise to me in some respects um, the intense level of um, vitriol that was spewed forth from a lot of these individuals. Um, I went to so when I and I went when I went through college, a lot of men that I knew that were very into the video game culture, they would have friends, we would have friends, um, women that wanting to play alongside them and get involved as well. And they were incredibly mean to them to the point that they just were like, you know what? Cool. I'm not interested anymore. And it was at a level that was completely different than the level I experienced when I played sports. And I don't know if that, that correlation is necessarily going to make sense to anyone except in my head, but it, it seemed like it was more targeted, I guess I should say. It was more targeted, whereas with the jocks that I grew up with and, and played sports with, it was more dismissive. Like, dismissive, like, uh, you can be here, you cannot be here. Video game side, it was, it was more intense and almost this, like, feeling of, and this is going to be a little clunky, but feeling of like, this is my space. I was shunned from the jocks. This is my space. And now you're trying to invade it. And I don't want you here. And I don't know if that's an accurate assessment. That was just my perception of it. But I would love to get your idea and perspective, maybe around that the mindset of someone that would, would attack someone like you. Well, I mean, uh, the thing is, a lot of them have come to me and apologized in the year since. So I can I can tell you exactly what is yeah. happening in many of their their heads. Um, 
I, I can tell you the people that I've talked to, they have a very similar story. Uh, you know, they were at a point in their life, they feel like they got caught up in this, in this crowd. Uh, they were unhappy. They were struggling with depression. Um, and, you know, this was a way to, they felt that uh, basically women were trying to take away video games mm. and it upset them. Um, I, I can tell you, having met a lot of gamer gators over the years, they have a lot of things in common. Uh, they were generally under socialized, uh, had a lot of trouble reading uh, body cues uh, or just uh, perceiving emotion. I'll give you a really good example. Uh, there was a college talk that I gave, um, and there was this one man that stood up in the middle of this talk. It was very, very, very disruptive. Um, asked a lot of just really aggressive questions. And, you know, I've, I've dealt with people like this. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me. I just, you know, shut it down the way that you see someone giving a large talk would do that. This is what scared me. After this, he came up to me and the faculty uh, liaison that invited me and followed us to our cars, asking us really aggressive questions at 11 o'clock at night. Whoa. These are two women. Yeah. Following us to our car through a college campus at night. And I think if I told that man, you were scaring the mess out of both of us, he would have been surprised. He there was no light bulb that went off for to make him understand that mm. that same kind of under socialization is is why he was lonely to yeah. be frank and i think when when you're kind of lacking that perspective i think you're asking yourself like why are women staying away from me and i think it kind of uh, uh comes into this very misogynistic attitude yeah. That's well put. You know, I think, and you did a significantly better job than I did as far as bringing that down. But, but I think it's important to, to understand that there's, there's a, there's always a why. And oftentimes um, when we start understanding people at the individual level, there's something behind the actions, right? So in this case, like you mentioned, there was some hurt or there was some depression or there loneliness. was yeah. loneliness, right? And that drives people into a state that they don't want to be in. And so when they're able to step out of that and get some perspective, then I think we get the moments where you talk about folks coming and apologizing in that respect. I, I want to say something that, I, I'm always scared to because I think people are going to attack me over it. But this is this is truly how I feel. You know, when I look on Twitter at the end of the day, this is something I learned running for Congress, by the way, and literally meeting tens of thousands of people. When I look at Twitter and I look at the leftist discourse there, I think if you really, really, really boil it down to its most essential element, it is people saying, I matter and you don't see it. I think when you're talking about transgender people and the discourse around that or Black Lives Matter or, you know, non-binary people or gay people, um, you know, the autism, autism community, uh, people with disabilities, what you're commonly seeing with that is I hurt and I matter. You know, that's that's the real reason why you might see this uh, aggressive discourse about say pronouns you right. know or or pride right? right because you're really coming down to someone's need correct need to feel respect in the world yeah. i would posit to you that that same human impulse is what drove a lot of gamer gators mm. you know these are people that grew up Games are their culture. It's their thing. They feel like they have ownership over it. And I, I feel like they, 
their pain is so apparent when you meet them in person. I think what they get wrong is, you know, if you are gay or transgender or a person of color, you know, that's not a, you can't decide how other, you can't go to therapy and address that, right? Right, right. (laughs) Nor should you. Uh, That is the correct way for you to be in the world. I think for a lot of the gamer gators, they're very reluctant to look inside and say, I hurt, I'm lonely, I'm miserable. What do, what role do I have to play in fixing this? You know, going to therapy, that's hard, difficult work. I know firsthand, it's a lot easier to just blame someone else for it. And I think that's why the discourse is so toxic, to be honest. Yeah. It is very hard work uh, to do the work in order to understand why. I mean, I'm also speaking from experience going and having those tough conversations that you don't want to have and uncovering um, things about yourself that you were not aware of and then talking through it, laying it bare and then moving through that, working through it um, to get to the other side is incredibly rewarding. Yeah. extremely difficult to do and it 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 is difficult to even see that that's what you need in a lot of respects yeah so if people want to so now shifting a little bit you know we've talked about a lot of good tough topics that I'm that constantly fascinate me as as a as a dad of two kids and trying to make this more inclusive world and so I want to know from your perspective, coming back around to video games, what excites you about video game development? What brought you into it? What has made you um, continue forward in that in that career path in that respect? Well, you know, for me, I, I think a lot of, and this is speaking for me, but. What I find appealing about video games is it is a world that tells a story that you just can't get another way. Mm. Um, You know, something like Mass Effect, something like Final Fantasy, something like, uh, you know, Dragon Age. These These are some of the best stories that have ever been written and just told in this artistic, beautiful way that keeps you involved. Um, I think there's just something about that experience that just, it it makes my soul sing. Um, Video game development is honestly the hardest job I've ever had. I have to tell you, I've been a journalist, I've been a politico, I've been a, a candidate. Game development is a drastically harder job than any of those in terms of the brain power, the creativity, the technical understanding that you need. Um, I, I just, I love everything about the industry. Yeah, I love the people that you work with there. Um, the first time I started to meet women in the video game industry, I felt like I'd met my tribe. Um, and I just felt a connection there like I'd never felt before. It was, it was just amazing. How can we start, and this is perhaps a, a ambitious question to ask, but how can we start to create a culture and an environment where we talked about a little bit earlier, but women can not only be welcomed into the industry and the career path, but also actively move up and start running these companies and these campaigns instead of kind of being mired in the middle and leaving the industry. I I think that's a very perceptive uh, question. You know, Anita Sarkeesian and I, both targets of Gamergate, and we both have very different diagnoses here. Uh, Anita looks at the output of our industry, uh, which is wildly sexist. I mean, there's just no question about that. For me, I've always been far more interested in the input side of the, the industry. Who is making games? Who gets a publisher to hand them $100 million to make an idea? Who gets promoted to uh, to a senior level, who gets to review games for these publications to decide what has merit and what 
doesn't. And what we see is it's the same kind of person uh, making the same kind of games. I personally believe until we wrestle and, and really get serious about addressing this leadership crisis in the game industry and, and, and addressing the bro culture, yeah. it's not going to get any better. Um, you're going to have window dressing and the women that you bring in are going to be meat for the machine. Yeah. I will never forget being at, uh, it was, uh, Grace Hopper, right? This is a, a very famous conference for women in tech. And you, know, you had all these game companies there and they're bringing in women and I met one. And then a couple of, uh, of years later, I met up with the same woman again, and she had just left the tech industry altogether. And she was telling me how her entry job at one of the AAA game studios had been so terrible, she'd actually decided to quit altogether. Wow. Until we address these kind of structural problems there, it's just not going to get better. And I got to tell you, this is the darn problem, because no one in the industry feels like they have any freaking work to do. Yeah. It is exhausting. Yeah. Every guy there thinks that they're a great guy. And, you know, until you start having really hard discussions, it's just not going to get any better. Yep. We've all got our own biases that we're not even aware of. And of course, and it's especially hard when you, when one perceives themselves to be the nice guy, it's even harder to start that dialogue in a conversation because um, I know that when it was until it wasn't until I started doing some intentional examination of how I interacted with people, how I came off, how I welcomed people or shut people down without even realizing it. Not until things were pointed out to me very intentionally and specifically was I even aware of a lot of the biases that I had. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is not my intention at all. And it was a very good friend and colleague that said, absolutely, I know that's not, that's not the perception you want. That's not what you're trying to do. So let's talk about it. Let's adjust it. Let's move forward. But that's one-on-one -on -one interaction with how many people in the industry like that is exhausting work. For sure. Of course it is. You know, and I'm not, I've had literally this exact same uh, thing myself. I married my husband, right? Uh, Frank Wu. I am white. He is Chinese. I have to tell you, when we first got married, there is stuff I learned about anti-Asian bias in this world. I had just literally never thought about before. And Frank had some uncomfortable conversations with me about that. I grew up in Mississippi. I have been spending my entire life thinking through the racist programming that I got there. Right. And all the time I'm asking myself, well, do you feel this way because of this? And you have to think about it critically. Yeah. If, 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 yeah, this comes back to rehab almost. Right. When I was in rehab, one of the very first statistics they told me on the day that I left is there is an, a nine out of 10 chance you're going to relapse in five years. And that was true with my rehab class. And I firmly believe the reason I got clean on that first try is because unlike a lot of the people there, I really, really, really looked hard at my behavior and the mistakes I made to get me in that door because it, it's really easy to blame it on other people but i took accountability and i did my best to change that that is something that i have and i think if you're not willing to admit fault and admit mistake and to get better which most people aren't it's why this stuff is so hard to solve yeah absolutely and I think kind of bringing it back around. So speaking as someone who has a daughter and a son, my mission as I see it as a, a to be a, a good human is to one, make sure that my daughter feels empowered to whatever industry she walks into to own it and be able to 
slay the competition and move forward. And for my son to ensure that he is not giving into the bro culture, that he's helping to disrupt the culture and creating a better, more inclusive environment. Because I think, I think we can get so honed in on the diversity part of diversity. Let's hire the, the input, right? Let's hire more. Let's get more people in the door. Let's focus on expanding the amount of heads that we have in that we lose sight of the inclusive part and don't create that culture that will disrupt what's been there before, which when we bring people in, they're able to thrive. Yeah, I, that's dead on. That's all it is, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I can only speak for me, but it's it's so hard because when I go to work, I don't want to be seen as, you know, it, it's... It, uh, it, my network, you know, I, I have a podcast on Relay FM, right? Something I really envy about my white male colleagues, of which there are many, is they don't have to spend all this this time thinking about all this garbage. Like right. they have this mental space free in a way that I don't, and I, I deeply, deeply envy them. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's not fun for the person trying to get a fair shot to, to do this stuff, but it's right. the only way forward. Yep. That is a good note to end that discussion on. So we're going to transition to the next part of the show, which is called Things to Check Out. So it is a part of the show where I provide a couple of recommendations, usually of something I'm reading or listening to and or listening to, and I ask my guests to do the same. So I will go first. So I am a huge soccer fan, and right now we've got the European Championships and the Copa America going on as well. Um, so I'm all in on that, and I'm rereading a book that I've brought up on the show before called Soccernomics. It's a little old, the huh. version I have. It takes soccer and economics and data to tell you why England always loses, why Brazil always wins, and why the U.S. maybe, just maybe, the U.S. men, because the U.S. women have already dominated the field. They've got it figured out. But the U.S. men might, at some point, figure it out based on the data. So that's interesting. Uh, podcast, if you're also into uh, soccer, is the Total Soccer Show. They definitely don't need my recommendation, but they are a good, quick news podcast for soccer if you're interested. And because we're discussing games, I thought I would give a game recommendation because I'm always looking for more. Um, I love Football Manager. Um, huh. I love the the management idea. Um Perhaps it's my need to feel in control of certain situations, but that's a conversation <laughs> for another time. But uh, I don't have the time to dedicate to the PC version, so I have moved exclusively to Football Manager Mobile, um, but I enjoy it quite a bit. So with that, Bree, what, uh, what are you reading or listening to or playing? So, okay, so it's got to be a, a product that I'm, I'm listening to or something like that right now. Right. I am completely addicted to Cruel Summer. Have you, have you heard about this show at all? No, I have not. Okay, so uh, uh, after I got vaccinated, I go down to Disney, and they've got these signs up everywhere for Cruel Summer. Uh, these two girls, no one knows the truth. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like they're going to get me addicted to some teen drama. Please, I'm a 40-year-old woman. Uh, 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 well, that did not end up being the case. Uh, so it's about, it's set in the 1990s. Okay. And it, it covers this one girl over three years of her life. It starts with uh, her as kind of this very innocent 14-year-old. Uh, very, very nerdy. The next year you see her, she's the most popular girl in school. She's really come into her own and she's in this mean girl social clique. And then the year after that, she's literally the most hated woman in America Whoa. Uh, because uh, basically uh, a girl was kidnapped and accuses her of doing nothing and leaving her uh, kidnapped in this man's house for a year. Wow. And it picks apart this entire year between these two characters uh, in a really, really, really compelling way. Um, I'm absolutely loving that. Uh, as far as video games, uh, right now I'm replaying through Mass Effect Trilogy. Uh, this is, in my opinion, the greatest story ever told in video game form. They just re-updated it for PC and PS4. It is excellent. I cannot recommend it enough. Very, very nice. I've heard nothing but good things about that game. I've never played it, but now oh. I've got a reason to. 
So there we oh, go. You've got to. You've got <laughs> I will. to. I will. All right. So now we're moving on to the final part of the show. It's the dad joke of the week. It's a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guest in an attempt to get them to laugh while the audience groans, but I can't hear the audience. <laughs> I can only hear my guests. So it works out. But I do like to put my guests on the spot. So Bree, do you have any jokes that you would like to offer up today? Uh, all my jokes are, we'll get you demonetized. Unfortunately. <laughs> all right. Well, I've got, I've got a few. <clears throat> um, so Bree, when, it, or wait, no, yes. Here was one that my daughter told me um, earlier, so I thought I would bring it into the show uh, to honor her. Um, uh, why did two fours skip dinner? I don't know. Because they already ate. Because they're two fours <laughs> and they're eight. She thought she was so clever. The whole house was rolling. She's all about number jokes right now. Um, That's I an her, old joke. Did she come up with that on her own? I, she, or is it something that just passes along on like I don't a genetic know. I, it was, level? It did not come from me. I taught yeah. her the why was six afraid of seven because seven, right. eight, nine. And she <laughs> thought that was funny. But then she um, she saw that joke and she won up to me with the, the eights. So I was like, okay, all right. Game set and match. <laughs> so what kind of car does a sheep like to drive? I don't know. A Lamborghini. A Lamborghini. <laughs> all right, all right. Last one, last one. When is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Yes, there it is. <laughs> there it is. All right, well, Bree, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Definitely. Uh, you can do that. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter. Uh, that is Brianna Wu, B-R-I-A-N-N-A, Wu, on Twitter. And if you want to support my uh, pack, you can do that by going to helptherebellion.com. We are laser focused on helping our democracy stay alive by uh, making sure the midterms turn out the way that they need to. And your Twitter is fantastic. There's a lot of people that I enjoy following that follow you, such as Wendy Davis, wonderful Texas woman. So from my neck of the woods. So I absolutely love that. And I, uh, I wrote down a few the Reverend Raphael Warnock follows mm -hmm. you. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Um, Patton Oswalt, of course. Yep. And uh, Candace Valenzuela, who's also from my neck of the woods as well. So another wonderful woman politician. So she, if you want a good follow, I highly recommend following the wonderful and incomparable Brianna Wu. Brianna, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, thank truly you for appreciate me. it. I appreciate it. Of course. Well, listeners, you've been detoxing with detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.